each of us is constituted as individual organisms. But our orientation, our duty, is to the whole. And, and so that's not individualistic. But still, the reality is we are constituted as individual organisms. And that puts limits on you know, how to get stuff done. Welcome to Act in Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. Daniel Klein is professor of economics and gin chair at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, where he co-leads a program in Adam Smith. There's been renewed interest in the role Christianity has played in liberalism since Larry Seidentrop's 2014 book, Inventing the Individual, The Origins of Western Liberalism. Today in this episode, Dan Churchwell, Acton's Director of Programs and Education, sits down with Klein to discuss Adam Smith and his Enlightenment vision. Building on Seidentop, Klein says universal benevolent monotheism, and Christianity in particular, has led to the articulation of a specific social grammar and corresponding rights. In short, Adam Smith's liberal plan. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Well, today I have the pleasure of talking with uh, Dr. Daniel Klein. Uh, he's a professor of economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Uh, Dr. Klein, thank you for joining us. Great to be here. Um, you were able to speak at our Acton Lecture Series earlier today, um, kind of on this idea of inventing the individual, um, Adam Smith, and uh, – it was really great, and I, we really appreciate it. Uh, we have a really wide array. Our, our audience um, is varied in their knowledge, though, of Adam Smith. Probably, can you can you just introduce a little bit? I mean, you've written dozens of articles and books on, on this topic. Um, you even uh, chair a center on Adam Smith at at George Mason. So this is your specialty. Can you just give us a little? Um, uh, refresher. Who was Adam Smith? When did he live? And kind of why should we know him now? He was a Scottish moral philosopher born in 1723. Um, moral philosophy is, you can think of it as all the human sciences. So it includes history. It includes social sciences like economics and political science. So all human considerations are under this very broad umbrella, um, all of ethics. So it's just not natural philosophy, like physics and astronomy. So he's a moral philosopher, and his first book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, takes up ethics, and he develops a whole, uh, an entire ethical outlook. And it involves a universal benevolent beholder, which he calls the impartial spectator, um, and, and it's obviously associated with God. Um, and so it is a kind – it's kind of like a whole framework for ethics. It's very rich and, and fascinating uh, to delve into and he goes through talking about all the different virtues and how they play a part in this entire approach. 
And that broad ethical umbrella developed in his first book really is extended in the second, where the human conduct of particular interest in the second book, the second work, The the Wealth of Nations, is the behavior, the conduct of the lawmaker, the, the legislator. And the question is, what is good government law? Okay, And to answer this question, he realized, as many people in that day were realizing, that they needed to develop the vocabulary of economics. So you see, economics is very much an extension and expression of the basic moral issue about what serves the good of the whole, humankind, and then what decisions, policies are becoming a legislator. What is the virtue? What is virtue in a legislator? Virtue in a legislator is legislating good legislation. What is good legislation? What, is, what should you believe? What should you understand? So really, it's still ethics. It's just that the actor now is especially lawmakers, policymakers, and so on. Besides the, the policy side, there's also commerce, per se. So you can think of the merchant um, and here he's very much morally authorizing the pursuit of honest income, which means he's saying by an invisible hand, pursuing honest income serves the good of the whole, makes a very sustained rich case for this throughout the whole work. And so this invigorates economic activity by entrepreneurs, by merchants and so on. Um, innovation comes because people are emboldened. They, they feel they have God's approval to innovate, make money. You use the term, you know, he's known, you know, several phrases are well known still to this day, but the invisible hand, can you, you know, what, we hear that sometimes or it's written up in a, in a commentary. What, what did he mean by invisible hand? He meant that things flow from the individual's actions that were not intended or not the focus of his action. And the The expression generally carries the further connotation of a goodness of things, unintended things. So the the innovator, the entrepreneur might pursue honest income, um, but what he does in the process of that thing he intends to get rich, let's say, is that he – is that barefooted kids now wear shoes and have their teeth fixed. The Great Enrichment. That's an expression, by the way, about – that comes from Sabrina. Humphrey Bogart uh, plays Linus Larrabee. He's a big industrialist and he gives this great speech about – it's not about money really. That's a byproduct, he says, although obviously it's an important mechanism in all of this. Um, But he says, you know, what the thing is, this means that barefooted kids now have shoes and so on. Okay. Um, so the invisible hand generally has that connotation of and good things, good unintended things come from this. So it serves the good of the whole, even though the actor isn't focused on the good of the whole. And he really, I mean, he he was writing at a time, uh, specifically in the Scottish Enlightenment, where I mean, he had uh, wasn't his professor was uh, Hutchison, right? Correct. And and then he traveled and he met Voltaire and he I mean he uh, personal friend was David Hume. So what a time to be alive, indeed. And and interact. I mean, what what do you think? Just being in that ecosystem. I mean, how did he impact or or was he impacted by those thinkers during that Enlightenment period? 
Absolutely. He's very much part of a, the whole phenomenon. Um, one of the interesting things about the Scottish Enlightenment and Smith, Hume, Hutchison, uh, is that the, the, the political class, to some extent, cleared out after the union of 1707, which is to say that after 1707, the uh, Scottish parliament was dissolved and people who sat in it went and sat down in London. And, and I think that that experience opened up cultural space for intellectuals, professors and such, which, which Hutchison was um, and Smith was. Um, so you see what I'm saying? It's kind of like, you know, there's, there's, there's cultural leaders in a society and the big political leaders are part of that, of course, and exercise or exert a lot of influence. But when they suddenly kind of get shifted out of town, it opens up space for, um, uh, in this case, a, a not governmental part of uh, the community to maybe rise and fill some of that cultural space. And they were very much looked up to as a mountaintop in the cultural landscape of Europe, that is to say, Scotland, Edinburgh, and Glasgow. I've read, you know, arguments on both sides of this, but wasn't it also true that it was at the time that um, just mere literacy, the idea of the educated public mm -hmm. was, was becoming, I mean, the opportunity to publish books and read and get ideas out there. It was a very flourishing time for those concepts too. It, Absolutely. It, yeah. Absolutely. Literacy was very strong uh, but, but by any comparative measures. Uh, in that area, uh, it was part. It's part, of course, of a of a Protestant thing to be literate, to read the Bible directly without um, intermediaries necessarily, and print culture is just developing, absolutely. And then periodicals of different kinds started up, the Spectator and these kinds of things in Britain. Because wasn't his uh, his theory of moral sentiments, seventeen uh, fifty? That it was a. I mean, I guess what would be considered a bestseller. I mean, it sold out. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't. It sold out. It did well. It was well received initially, um, and it had a good reputation. It. I don't think it was like a super, super huge thing, um, but it definitely established him. Was well received. Uh, the early reviewers included David Hume and Edmund Burke, although they, those were not signed reviews. You know. So we talked a little bit. And fast forward to 1776, we have the theory of moral sentiments. Uh, or uh, uh, the Wealth of Nations published, and that really, it seems, puts him on the map and these, these ideas of um, invisible hand. And then you, you mentioned one as well that I think we, you hear at times, the idea of the impartial spectator. What, what did he mean? Why, why was he using that as an illustration, that phrase? Why did that mean so much? And why do we derive still to this day so much um, you know, philosophical or engagement with that topic? Yeah, that word is central in the theory of moral sentiments. And the expression impartial spectator actually has a number of meanings within that work. Um, if you were at a restaurant and you have, let's say, an altercation with the server. The guy at the next table who is spectating and who evidently is impartial, like, you know, not partial to you, not partial to the server, like in a kind of supposed way, a supposed way, yeah, there's an impartial spectator. And you do think about what it would look like to someone like that. But so it starts there. But we start to focus on 
people we especially admire, exemplars, and think of them as good examples of taking an impartial view of maybe more complicated moral interactions, things about our life, things about what to pursue. And so it also has a meaning there of our, of our exemplars, people we admire and look up to. And then um, it also is the composite of all of that that you develop within your own breast, as he puts it, the man within the breast, the conscience. That too gets called impartial spectator. But he also says that the man within the breast is a representative of a godlike beholder, universal beholder, benevolent beholder of humankind. And so that's the highest sense, God sense of impartial spectator. So actually the term has all of this, this whole scale, like a stairway to heaven kind of set of meanings. And they're interrelated because you go step by step, as it were, and you hope that you're improving your man within the breast as a representative of God. So they're all kind of related, but you do have to kind of keep track to some extent when you read him, which one does he mean at each point? Interesting. So, so is he um, – uh, C.S. Lewis, right, in his book, The Abolition of Man, about the head, the chest, and the belly. Uh-huh. And the head was, raw, you know, raw rationalism. Right. The belly was our appetites, you know, coelia, the, mm-hmm. the belly. And then the chest was that mediating is, – is that a similar idea? Is, is that – There is a connection there for sure uh, uh, that the chest is the seat of some kind of uh, spirit, motive – um, and also the the the, sen- the sentimental element of uh, Smith that it's got a, that the, your feeling is based on a lot of accumulated experience and thinking that you've reduced to kind of a set of impulses and reactions again kind of within your conscience your sense of propriety and so your chest sometimes informs your head mm-hmm. like your sometimes your chest knows better mm-hmm. and that's what lewis was saying too that we have these brainy idiots who look like they have big brains but the only reason they look like that is because their chests are so small atrophy yeah <laughs> yeah that's good so so he he is um what what during his day you know sometimes Different writers they they become more famous after their death, if you will. Mm-hmm. But was he was he um, impactful during his life? I mean, was he impacting other thinkers at the time, or was he on the just very? Uh, you had a question. You know, uh, there was a question in the. Uh, lecture earlier about, you know, industrial revolution. And you mentioned, I mean, he was just on the very front edge of, you know, of 1800. And um, what what was his influence? His influence was enormous. He, as we said, he was prominent from the theory of moral sentiments. And that book made a diffuse kind of impact uh, in his day. The Wealth of Nations was immediately very impactful. It was clear to people that he was – first of all, he was christening his politics liberal. He's very much part of this christening that happens in the 1770s. This is why we speak of classical liberalism. It's Smithian liberalism. It's what these guys meant when they spoke of liberal policy, liberal plan, liberal government, liberal principles. That's what they do. And that's why when that got turned into an ism – Mm-hmm. It was called liberalism, mm-hmm. like in Gladstone. Um, and so that's, you know, classical liberalism. And that- so, so let me just can – I, can I stop you right there sure. real quick? Some people might think, you know, 
conservative, progressive, or liberal conservative, you know, in, in that what is, is there a can you define classical liberalism in a way? Is that because that's yeah. not the right way to think about it, right? The left versus the right. Classical liberalism would certainly be more associated today in America with the right, if you had to say the right or the left, I feel. Um, Smith put it this way allowing every man to pursue his own interest, his own way upon the liberal plan of equality, liberty, and justice. So the basic principle you get from the wealth of nations in terms of a kind of policy direction or, or presumption is leave people free, okay? And this whole discussion in the wealth of nations presupposes a stable polity, a, a nation state, if you like. Um, and that's not a small thing to presuppose, realize. Um, I mean, Britain was kind of out front on that. And so a lot of the world was just still trying to get a stable integrated polity going, like a nation or something going. So that's, that's why one reason why it's much messier elsewhere, outside the Anglosphere. Um, but basically, it's saying assuming a, a stable polity, a stable government and everything, basically the presumption should be smaller government, not interfering, not taxing, allowing every man to pursue his own interest, his own way. Uh, so I would say that Smith's classical liberalism is against the governmentalization of social affairs. I use the term governmentalization because I want to speak not only of interventions and restrictions on individuals, but also government playing large roles because they tax people or because they enjoy other sorts of privileges that make big government players in society, which governmentalizes social affairs because we have such big government players. I think classical liberalism is generally against big government. And th thereby leaving people less free. So the, the bigger yes. the government gets, the more control. They, is that how the argument flows? It's not just less free. I mean, it does make, I mean, the restrictions and stuff and higher taxes do directly make people less free, but also just it stinks. I think Smith thinks that big government or the governmentalization of social affairs is, is bad. Mm -hmm. it, it's better not to be. And I certainly believe that too. I think even in the theory of moral sentiments, he's arguing that a great deal, although sometimes kind of in a subtle, indirect way. And if I understand right, though, he, he's not anti-government, right? I mean, he, he doesn't think there should be no governing bodies or no laws or legislation. Correct. Right? Correct. He's very much pro-authority and stability, as is David Hume and Edmund Burke, his buddies, and in certain respects, it's proper, I think, to call it a conservative liberalism where they don't want to screw with that – with whatever it is that enables you to suppose a liberal – a stable polity uh, because you, you can do things that upset that stability. And politics can be crazy as they saw as, as, as even Smith began to see just before he died in 1790. I mean he saw it in other ways of course throughout his life for sure. But, uh, but then the French Revolution, uh, Burke especially saw and commented on of course. Mm -hmm. So you use um, Smith in, in your lecture earlier today. You, 
you heavily, you, you know, Smith was kind of near the end because you wanted to show what created the environment or the ecosystem to allow Smith to write and to think in the way he did. And it, it was kind of revolving around the idea of Larry Seedentop's book, Inventing the Individual. Uh, c- can you just give us a brief thesis of, yeah. of that idea? Christianity made liberalism possible. That's the idea. No Christianity, no liberalism. That's not to say that Christianity necessarily leads to liberalism. It did not in, the, in Eastern Europe, in Eastern Christianity. But it made liberalism possible because the ontological elements of Christianity and the moral intuitions that come with all of that invent the individual. They kind of create the individual. It's an elaborate story. An important element, though, in understanding this idea of what Seedentop is saying is that it hasn't always been like this. Like, we take so much for granted, and rather our history and past in many ways is a, is, is a society, a social situation that is very cultish. Mm-hmm. And whether that is uh, the hunter-gatherer band of our Paleolithic past— which I think is still in our genes, or the ancient world, as Seedentop puts it. You can think of ancient Greece and Rome, where you have this compound of nested cults down to the family. The family, in fact, was a cult, and the uh, familias was a priest. And so you got to realize that it was actually a very religious society. It's just that you know, they may not have taken, you know, Zeus or Jupiter all that seriously, but it was still actually a, 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 a compound of nested cults. And that might be unfamiliar for you know, so when you mean cult, I mean that's what culture. That's what you know. What, what do you mean by cult? It's culture, but it's very much like sac- yeah, sacred elements Cultus, yeah. and built into daily practice, daily, un- daily understanding, and direct social signals that um, are consensus-oriented and immediately observable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Christianity turned that upside down in a lot of ways and, and stepped outside of that, often very visibly, for example, with martyrs or hermits or anchorites and, so, and such, which actually kind of impressed people. Uh, all of a sudden, these people outside the cult, and hence an idiot, were kind of like impressing people and actually starting to win people over because they had a whole way of making sense now with these different ontology and different intuitions that began to make sense. Uh, but it took so, so, so long for these intuitions to play out, to get translated into social experience, social practice, and politics. Um, And Seedentop is arguing, and I agree with him, that this actually made possible the whole liberal development of Western Europe. And and when you say – so the other writers have used the term kin or tribal. So what you're saying is – or the cult, you've moved from that Christianity – allows somebody to move from the cultist to, to the individual. Is, yeah. that what, is that what like it helped develop the concept That's of correct. That's correct. There's a standing of an individual before God not mediated, in fact, sometimes called upon to defy their family and so on, defy their city mm-hmm. even. Uh, that's the martyr, right? And, um, and similarly, this, this pattern before God 
gets kind of translated so so that now in the under Caesar, it's not the family that's the unit of subjection. It's the individual. Now, talking about subjection may not sound very, you know, classical liberal, but in fact, it recognizes now the individual and hence the individual's interests and rights and standing before God. So you don't trample here. And in fact, Caesar is just another creature of God with the same kind of responsibilities to God, which means not screwing with the other creatures of God and abusing them, including people of other countries and regions. Um, I mean, of course, this isn't necessarily the way Christianity looked over hundreds of years, but we do get a liberal vein ramifying out of this. Um, and, and Seton Top's arguing that you needed this Christian stuff to get it to, to get that to even come into existence. So, so is he? I mean, theologically, if you think about, it, I mean, the the general Christian idea is that the individual was oriented or should be oriented towards God. So there is an element of individual, but I mean, the idea of community or being a part of the body, like in, in New Testament. Scriptures, the idea of being a part of the body of Christ is that's a, a you know whether somebody's an eye or an ear there there's an element of being a part there's a communitarianness in embedded in Christianity absolutely and, and, and so are you is this kind of a sociological observation I mean because it, it seems like there might be just a little rub theologically with the somebody being a raw individual. Yeah, absolutely. It's the individualism is that we are we are each of us is constituted as individual organisms. But our orientation, our duty is to the whole. And and so that's not individualistic. But still the reality is we are constituted as individual organisms. And that puts limits on you know how to get stuff done how stuff plays out uh, what can be trusted and so on and really there it's where the whole understanding you know you're kind of called by god to learn how things work and so learning um, thinking becomes kind of an imperative and and the way we're constituted as individuals means that sometimes it's much better to let individuals do things, allowing every man to pursue his own interest his own way, as Smith elaborates in The Wealth of Nations. But, you know, there's a long tradition of, of thinking along those ways and the, the merits of the individual. So, you see, your duty is to the good of the whole, but you don't necessarily focus on the good of the whole. This, you, there's a moral authorization that comes to focus on the things that you can, your, folk, your efforts are actually effective in, effective. And effectiveness depends a great deal on knowledge and control. And that's so limited to us organisms, right? I mean, and it's natural for, for you to say, okay, Dan, you take, you take responsibility for that body of your, or the hand, and then the things that, and we extend the idea of ownership to other objects of property. And this is the only way to do it. And, and this is partly, you know, again, developing it into liberalism through jurisprudence, by the way, because jurisprudence, which is very much part of God's path, um, um, develops ideas about property, about agreement, contract, 
about what messing with those things looks like and is therefore frowned upon. So you kind of you kind of square the paradox that you raise about individual and collective mm-hmm. with this liberal approach, classical liberal approach. Because one of the, uh, it seems like one of the arguments or counterexamples is is today if you look at modernity you know what we are now whatever we're whatever age we're in um it seems like there's a problem of radical individualism and that every you know so if if you were to say everyone is his own i I guess uh, what i'm trying to ask is theologically there seems to be a moral grounding in the person and work and the text and of 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 a christian identity and there's a moral grounding in text and in a person, Jesus, you know, the, that kind of argument or uh, angle. And if, if what, what is the grounding or moral grounding for this if everybody is, you know, just radically free, what, what, what kind of helps ground so that there is a – if I'm understanding you, like a common good? Yeah. What, 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 if, if everybody is radically free, what is the grounding that, that allows people to, to get along? You would hope it would be appreciation of certain traditions, customs, moral leaders of different kinds, including religious ones, um, that would cohere and and would be worthy moral leaders and influences. That's not the way it's going, evidently, you know, obviously – um, but that that's the way it did go for a while and worked out, I would say, pretty well. We had a good thing going. It's not doesn't really look that way overall at the present, but things can go turn around. Who knows? Um, I don't know what else to say. You know, there's no other guarantees. I'm not. It's everything's not upward. Sure, sure. And your, your recent article, um, I believe it was. Uh for AIER, right? About the baby in the bathwater. They exact... reprinted it. It was started off at Law and Liberty. Oh, at Law and Liberty. Okay. Because you, you, you draw out that concept of why religion is important to these conversations. Yes. And we'll, we'll link to that as well in, in the show notes so that people can see how you unpack that a little bit with, uh, with Daniel Mahoney, I believe, is your, your Correct. co-author. Because it seems to me like the, the, the vague or fuzziness – of a higher power or, or that language in, in – if you, if you go to a religion like Islam or Christianity, that there are, you know, there are rootednesses, there are texts, there are theologies, if you will, that one can point to and say this is why we believe X. Um, but then when that, – that the vague secular kind of freedom and individual, that there, there isn't a lot of moral – or it seems fuzzier to have any kind of moral grounding – in, with with raw individualism, am I am I thinking about that wrongly? Or I think vagueness is something we kind of we are to some extent stuck with either way. Actually, I don't think interpretation of scripture is all that precise and accurate and all that definite or definitive. So, and you know, I'm I'm piggybacking here, uh, particularly on some of my co-authors and colleagues who are Christians, mm-hmm. who would. I think say similarly. Um, so that's the thing. I mean, as much as the scripture is enriching and should be venerated, 
I don't think it I mean the Ten Commandments are one thing, but you know, general you know, more generally speaking, um it's it's not such a it's not a grammar. It's not like a grammar exactly. I mean the Ten Commandments are, but but it, most of it is not like that. And so um, you know, I think we need interpreters, culture, leaders, exemplars, traditions to guide us, to keep us on a decent, an upward path. You know, either way you look at it, however you look at it, however theistic your society is, that's the where, where hope, some a hope's got to lie. Uh, um, that is to say, good moral institutions and leadership and so on. Yeah. Uh, you know, government's a big player, and unfortunately, it's very, very dangerous in this respect. So, so this idea of individual, um, Adam Smith obviously takes that concept and tries to build it into, specifically in um, The Wealth of Nations, the idea of how economy is, I mean, is it you know the, what is he called the, the father of modern economics or the father of capitalism? I mean, you see these different terms used. Um, where where do you think? I was intrigued by your answer to the question um, during the lecture on, on the idea that he might have foreseen or, or did he? I mean, it unleashed two hundred years, give or take, of I mean, extreme economic growth. But it also, I mean, it, it hasn't been a perfect. Just because we're wealthier doesn't mean we're better. I mean, wealthier nations have less babies. They have, le- you know, I mean, you can. There are there are counterexamples. What, what, where are we now with Adam Smith's project? What would you, you know, if Adam Smith were to look back, or, or Adam to, Smith to look forward, if you will, Adam Smith never promised happiness, and he never promised. Um, unmitigated blessings from the liberal plan, not at all. In fact, both of his works end on a kind of dour note in, in, in that kind of relates here. Um, there's just a, the development of modern civilization just involves a kind of complexification of social life and enrichment and refining and refinement of everything, a kind of dividing and subdividing, separate and detached items that get recombined. And this process, which is very, you know, old for hundreds and hundreds of years of becoming more and more this way, is very different than a lot of our natural instincts, which goes back to this whole business about our past. But... (laughs) It's not necessarily going to be satisfying, and he well understands that just because you have greater wealth and washing machines and everything that you're not necessarily better off. He thinks moral condition – after some basic you know, material, moral condition is the primary matter of your well-being, moral condition. He says what can be added to the happiness of man who is in good health, out of debt, and has a clear conscience? Um, so it's mainly about the clear conscience, Classic, yeah. you know, and that, that's where that's where the moral it's all moral condition. Um, so, so you know, Smith, you should be careful not to misrepresent Smith as as having promised happiness, as as not having focused on material well being as what is all important. Um, do do I think he expected? Um, well, let's just say um, 
back uh, um, backpedaling or what, what's the right word? Um, um, you know, you know, the, the moving downward. I would say Smith, if he saw the world today, he would feel that in many respects, it's been a downward moral movement. Hmm. I think he would say that, and I'm talking about in Britain, mm-hmm. in the United States. Um, and I think I would say that actually. Um, and I do think we're, in, in some sense, less well-off, less happy, and less good, and less virtuous, on the whole, just generalizing. Um, I don't think he would have been surprised. I don't think he would have predicted it necessarily. He didn't make any kind of predictions along those lines. And, and, it's, and what he said about governmentalization being to the bad was true then. Mm-hmm. It's still true today. And so if we're going to do what God wants to, you know, what serves the good of the whole and get God's approval, we should continue to point that out, (laughs) (laughs) that governmentalization is still to the bad. Mm -hmm. And if people aren't listening, well, all we can do is what we can do. No, that's good. What what would be, um, to to close our our, our ideas and our time together, what what would be a few places if somebody wanted to read a little bit more about Adam Smith? Um, what would be, do you have a top, uh, a favorite Adam Smith book or biography or explanation of, of his work? Yeah. For someone who, uh, first of all, I think it's really good to read his words. Mm-hmm. And there is a book called The Wisdom of Adam Smith that Liberty Fund put out. Um, ben Rogi edited it. And it's very good. And it's got quotes. And I, I strongly encourage that as a kind of primer to get acquainted. And you're going to come across many of the most famous and important passages there. And from the theory of moral sentiments as well. It's not just the wealth of nations by any means. So that I think that might be the best way to get into it. Um, but I would encourage people to have the ambition to read the two great works. Um, I think the wealth of nations is much easier to read, even though it's much longer. Yeah. Um, but I do think the theory of moral sentiments is a greater work, mm-hmm. as Smith did. Did he? Yeah. Okay. That, that's fascinating. Yeah, I um, I don't know if you know. I mean, the Acton Institute was founded for several reasons, but one, one of the main ones is uh, Father Sirico had asked several of his um, Catholic friends coming out of seminary, or he was aware of. You know, it, it didn't seem like there was any economic education in Catholic seminaries, and so he asked some of his Protestant friends. You know, is there much economic engagement in Protestant seminaries? And, and there just wasn't. And so he saw that there was this outsized influence of religious thinkers on economic. I mean, they they have a platform to share and to talk about these ideas, but there might not have been a lot of knowledge around the idea of economics. And the reason I got introduced to Acton. 17 years ago was I was in a seminary and they came and did a conference. And I remember reading a section of Adam Smith for the very first time. I mean, I literally can remember where I was and starting to think through some of Adam Smith's concepts. And so um, for me, in my own journey, um, where later I worked at a, at a Christian college and I created a class called God, Wealth, and the Church to, to talk through some of these ideas, to try to be a, a remedial idea of what is economics, what does God think about it? And, and I think Adam Smith has a, has a a lot to say. So thank you for bringing your expertise, Dan, to the to the lecture series and to the podcast. And we're, we're really delighted you're here. Thank you very much. Thank Good you. to be here. 
As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Combs.